0: Welcome to Power Talking, the official podcast of eSource. Today we're gonna be talking about whether or not electric vehicles are ever going to be fully embraced by the major automakers. I am your host, Brian Jungers. I'm a lead analyst at eSource and I've been in the research department for about 10 years. I've been working on electric vehicle research and development for 18 years. Recently, I sat down with our chief instigation agent, Bill LeBlanc, as well as Chelsea Sexton from Fully Charged. We had a really interesting conversation about the future of electric vehicles. Let's take a listen. Bill, would you like to introduce yourself to the listening audience?
1: Oh, it's my turn already?
0: Yeah, (laughs) go for it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Brian. I am the chief instigation agent, as Brian said, and I work on electric vehicle market research and behavior. And I have been driving a plug-in vehicle since 2013, where I had a plug-in Prius, and then I wrecked that and got two Leafs. And when I say I drive, it's really my wife. I thought I was going to get to drive it, but she loves it so much that I really don't get to touch it.
0: (laughs) Uh, Chelsea, could you uh, introduce yourself, please?
2: Sure. I'm Chelsea Sexton. I've have no official title. I mostly just say I play with cars. But in reality, I have been advocating and working to replace fossil fuels with electrons in all forms of transportation for about 25 years.
0: All right, we're going to get into the meat. So we're going to play a quick game, Two Truths and a Lie, eSource talking version. I'm going to read three statements, and you all can guess which one is the lie. First statement. Nearly 20 years ago, General Motors had an EV that worked really well, but they physically collected all these cars and they crushed them. Statement number two in 2019, 80% of all EV sales in the United States were a Tesla brand. And statement number three according to eSource National Research, basic awareness of EVs among the general population has risen from about 50% in 2015 to nearly 75% today.
2: Dirty liar. that one that last one's untrue Uh,
0: and there's no way that gm collected
1: cars they built and crushed them
2: yeah no i'm pretty sure i've seen that movie
1: (laughs) what's the movie
2: (laughs) who killed the electric car
1: you were in that
2: we don't have to go there
0: (laughs) 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 oh revenge of the electric car you've got the poster so (laughs) revenge of
2: the electric car was our follow-up yes very different film Yes. Bit of a Valentine to, to three guys in the auto industry.
0: Uh, yeah. It's much more romantic than the first. first oh, moment. yeah.
2: Our director had some man crushes.
1: <laughs> so the 80% was true, and the uh, growth in awareness was the lie. Yeah. And GM did crush the cars.
2: Well established. Photos and everything.
0: I've got evidence. So Chelsea, you got a long history relationship with General Motors as a company, working with them back in the early days of the EV1. Um, they announced that by 2035, they're going to be all electric. So big announcement. you know. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think they're actually going to meet that goal? Do you think it's a big deal to make that kind of a goal set for the company? And um, just what are your general thoughts about it?
2: Well, I'm a little bit of a, of a grizzled veteran um, and not just about GM. I sort of apply this to all car companies, especially the incumbent ones. And it is basically show me, don't tell me. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, all of the investments are, are great. And folks are sinking billions of dollars each into electric vehicles. They're also all using their lobbyists to try to slow down regulations that compel electric vehicles and, and all of those, that basic dynamic still exists. And so the industry is still relatively ambivalent. The fact that they're going there is great. The fact that their bogey is 2035 is less encouraging. And there's also a lot of open questions in GM's case because the, the phrasing was we aspire to, and it's also light duty. And the reality is GM barely builds cars at all anymore. Most of it is is trucks and SUVs, and most of those are relatively heavy. So especially once you add a 100 kilowatt hour battery pack to a Hummer, (laughs) that is unlikely to be a light duty vehicle. (laughs) So the aspiration is for a very small subset of what they actually make. And on one hand, I look forward to all of it, but what they do in the next five years will matter more to me than what they do in 2035. Because if they are as serious as they claim to be, they have to get ready to go really fast right now. This is not let's hire and staff up and wait a few years. We're 10 years into this generation of electric cars. So we're at the put up or shut up time (laughs) for all of the legacy automakers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's a non-event is the way I look at it. I'm you know, a little more harsh than you are, but twenty thirty-five. That means I'm I'm going to tell everybody that I'm going to get in shape by twenty twenty-eight. You know, aren't we, you? No, I. Yes, I think that's right. Um, people say I should, but uh, the twenty twenty-five would be a great goal. So they could say fifty percent by then. They have no interim goals. They just said we're going to go twenty thirty-five all in. And they're all going to be retired by then. So we need way more meat on the bones. Um, Totally agree that it's just kind of not there.
2: Yeah. I mean, there is some irony and opportunity here. The original California zero emission vehicle mandate came about after GM had unveiled what was then the impact concept that eventually became the EV-1. And a few months later, on Earth Day 1990, Roger Smith was given a speech in Washington, D.C., and he went, you know what? I think we'll actually build that thing. And California said, oh, my God, really? You've decided you can do this? Well, here's a mandate. And so one useful thing, a little bit subversively about all these announcements, is it underscores the trajectory, and it gives... President Biden or individual states, the California Resources Board, all the more reason to embolden both the incentives and regulations compelling electric transportation of all stripes. So there's a little bit of like, oh, really, you say so? Now we're going to hold you to it. That should absolutely be the response to these types of announcements.
1: Yeah. Can they uh, technically accelerate that by seven sure. years?
2: Yeah, I mean, there is some some reality to how quickly they can turn over their entire internal combustion operation. And that's true for all of the incumbents. There is some reality to that. And I realize a lot of the purist enthusiasts, especially the Tesla fans, think that if they don't instantly switch over tomorrow, no matter the the... You know, effect on their business, then they're just not serious. And that's not quite fair either. But certainly it doesn't mean they have to wait until the 2030s to scale up volume. And on one hand, I've seen the next dozen vehicles. I like that there's a lot of larger variety in that. It's a thing we've kind of lacked in the EV space, trucks and SUVs and crossovers and things like that. But the next couple of vehicles we're going to see from GM are going to be relatively low volume. You know, the Hummer is not going to be built in large numbers and it is well over $100,000. So there's it's nice as an aspirational halo vehicle. I like that GM is comfortable talking about it as cool. I wish they could feel equally comfortable talking about the Chevrolet Bolt as cool, even if in different ways. But it's and not those to me. Well, just <laughs> to, to those that that like it, it is. I mean, even the Nissan Leaf is cool <laughs> to a certain set of people that have one.
1: I know I've I've had I've had two of them.
2: <laughs> right. And, and frankly, I don't think there's any usefulness in trying to disavow people of that choice. You know, I know Le- Nissan Leaf drivers that think they get the Tesla experience off the line because of the torque. I know the Tesla drivers laugh at them, but like, who cares if that's their experience and they're enjoying it, that's awesome. And that should be our goal. So I am not one that is for shaming various <laughs> electric vehicles and the people that choose them. I am all for challenging automakers to make better cars.
0: That's great. And how critical is this whole model diversification issue? And I hear this so often that the biggest hurdle to EVs really penetrating the market into the midstream is the fact that there's only sedans available. Um, but we see, you know, Tesla has all of these sedans, uh, mostly sedans they're selling and they're selling like hot cakes. But, you know, how much is that really going to open up the the market when we start to see these other models available, pickups, SUVs, crossovers, what have you?
1: And Brian, how many new models have been introduced in the last two years?
0: Plug-in models, whether PHEV or BEV. Uh, on the market or announced? I don't know. I'd say. No, on the market. <laughs> on the market? Um, a couple <laughs> dozen. Probably knows. Yeah, a couple dozen. <laughs> <Sorry about> that. <laughs> That's a lot.
2: Yeah. It's a lot, but but I think we have to apply the volume thing to this too. We have had the vast majority of EV models and plug-in hybrid models be compliance cars. So limited volume, limited availability, limited states, sometimes artificially limited by by price, etc. So I think the so the single biggest challenge facing EVs is lack of product. And that does mean vehicle diversity. Larger vehicles, trucks, things like that that we haven't really seen so far. It also means brand diversity. There is no single car or brand for everyone. And that's true whether it's internal combustion, diesel or electric or something in between. And we don't have very much geographic availability. So we certainly have to get availability beyond the carb states. We need more things that are available nationwide and not by special order. Um, You know, Ford stomped up and down and said forever that the focus was a nationwide vehicle. And yet on on their best day, they sold 35 a month. (laughs) But technically, if you stomped up and down in Kansas, you could make that dealer order one. That's not how this is going to move forward. So uh, there's a lot of flavors to product availability, but all of those things are true. And as much as Tesla has provided a lot of great things towards electrification, they are not the be all end all for everybody. And I run into a fair number of folks that are like, I look forward to an EV, but I can't afford a Tesla or frankly, I don't want one because the brand doesn't resonate with me or whatever the the thing is. We need more other options for folks.
1: And what what are kind of the minimum runs that you'll see with a car manufacturer that has a successful model line? And I'm not talking about very high end Porsche type cars. I'm talking more Ford, Chevy, Toyota. Do they need to move 10,000 units, 30,000 units, 50,000 units? What's steady state that they even bother to have a line of manufacturing for that model?
2: Well, their version versus mine is, is somewhat different. I mean, right now, most of the automakers still are in the compliance phase, even if they intend to go bigger in some years down the road. And On all of those goals, there's an asterisk that is basically unspoken and goes, unless we can change regulation in the meantime. But while there's some difference between what we'd expect of like a Subaru versus Volkswagen, one of the biggest companies in the world, anything under five digits in year one is not a serious effort. Um, and, And, you know, I think we have to be realistic about the fact that you know, even Tesla didn't start at 100,000 units. It started at 10. <laughs> and so there is a little bit of ramp up in the first year or two of production of any of these models. But, and, and you know, 10,000 from Subaru is far more respectable than 10,000 from Volkswagen. So there certainly should be some proration that happens <laughs> based on the automaker involved. But anything sub five digits is not in, intended to be serious.
1: Yeah, and, and, and part of that is... I don't see advertisements. Now, I don't watch much TV these days, but you get your Super Bowl ads, so they say we've done something, and Will Ferrell goes to Norway and Finland and Sweden, but what about really pushing these? And the dealers aren't going to push them until they're on the lots, like you said, but when are they going to start having real advertising to regular people?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that is... That's problem number two. It's it's fundamentally a lack of awareness. The vast majority of people, even in California, let alone nationwide, in, in sort of EV ground zero in the U.S., aren't aware of electric vehicles, could not name one if they had to. And, and even in the land of Tesla, that is true. So whether it's sort of you know advocate education or automaker marketing and really the combination of all of the things... That's another litmus test of the seriousness of any particular automaker is is getting beyond the notion of we're just going to build an EV and put it in a showroom and the rest will take care of itself. That has never been true, no matter how good the car is. And the reality is most of the plug-in cars we've seen in the last decade are actually pretty good cars, whatever our subjective opinions of are of them personally. But there's none that I go, oh, God, I'm so sorry you bought that because... You know, I won't tell you, but that's kind of a crap car. So so at least we're not in that scenario. But there's so much more to it than building a car and walking away. And that is very much in the marketing, in the education, and letting them be as cool as you would market any gas car. And there's certainly a place as well around cars versus other modes of electric transportation. So we need to be a little careful about narrowing it only down to pushing cool cars, But in the realm of cars, that has to be true. People buy emotionally and justify rationally. And we collectively are really pretty terrible at having that conversation. We tend to do, as our first film uh, producer describes it, too much spinach and not enough ice cream. (laughs) Here's why you should want an electric car. Here's why it makes a lot of sense rather than here's why this is just better and awesome and it's a big warm tent, come on in. The way we, we market anything else is with a better experience or the promise of one. It's not with pragmatism.
1: Yeah, super interesting point. Um, I want to go touch on the emotional versus pragmatic element a little bit more, which is in the research that we've done, ethnographic research, we've done market research. Our conclusion is that people have to see themselves succeeding in an electric vehicle. And that's what they do with most of their models. They want, you. They have images of people going to the tops of mountains and going fishing and, and uh, skiing. But with EVs, it's, you can save this much money, you can go this far, this is how big the battery is. A polar
2: bear will hug you. Yeah, yeah. and
1: that hurts. So yeah, <laughs> but uh, on, on, the, on the commercial vehicle side, um, it's different. It's more pragmatic for commercial, but for for consumers, it is. A, it's an emotional purchase. It, it's who they are, especially in California. Yes. I've lived there.
2: Well, except that just as much with the F one hundred and fifty drivers in Texas. So absolutely, I mean, for all of us, our our vehicles, whatever they may be, are sort of an extension of our, our of our personal identity. And so, yes, there is an aspect of. You know, people have to see themselves in that car and resonate to the emotional experience they think it will provide. Even the hybrid folks, it wasn't I mean, climate and environmentalism has always been the smallest reason anyone resonates to, to EVs, and even though it tends to be assumed as the focus. But, you know, the emotional experience of driving a hybrid is who I saved money. I feel smart because I made this smart choice. It's it's that sort of thing. It's not like I'll care about the polar bear so much, although. Certainly, if you survey me, I'm going to say that, but when I'm choosing in the dealer, right. it's a different set of math. Yep. And we have to understand the psychology of it and not resist it so much by trying to lead with the pragmatism. We lead with the emotion. We enable the rational justification for the second phase of it. Yeah, and And even uh, as much as we talk about fleets only being about the economics and the pragmatism, even that is not quite so hard and fast. And there's quite a few brands that are... Going electric, you know IKEA and Flipkart and AB InBev, Anheuser Busch, who openly say, "Look, we we think this will pencil, you know, from the bottom line in the long term." But the reality is that. Our brand wants to be associated with a progressive identity and we realize that our customers expect this of us. And and especially in in Europe and other places, climate is a bit more of a conversation there, but it's kind of the same thing. We know our customers expect us to be aligned with certain values. So the fact that it will also pencil economically today is gravy.
0: I want to talk about battery size for a second. Okay. So one of the... We've gone back and forth on this with a lot of folks over a lot of years. When we first met Chelsea, I was a graduate student in Dr. Andy Frank's plug-in hybrid lab. We're building plug-in hybrids. And we thought the ideal battery size was 40 miles because that really met people's driving daily needs. It's very pragmatic, very rational. Um, And, you know, PHEVs, plug-in hybrids, have gone out of favor in recent years, and the hardcore Tesla electric-only folks are pushing for 300-plus miles or however many miles on their battery. And how much does that matter to just average Joe Schmo, just the normal car buyer in the United States, their all-electric range, their EV battery size? I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah,
1: and and part of that, I'll I'll add a twist to it, is what they actually – you think they need, Chelsea, and what they say that they need and how much that relates to the fact that a gallon, you know, a a tank of gas will get you 300, 400 miles. And, you know, we have a friend at at eSource that said, well, why don't you just uh, make it a um, 100,000 mile battery? Because then I can just throw it away at the end like I do other things that have batteries. So, you know people don't realize that the battery has a cost. So how how do they make that decision? How do we help them make that decision?
2: Well, I I started my career selling cars in a Saturn dealer, gas cars at 17. So I'm, I'm relatively familiar with the normal buying public and their motivations. I think it's, there's, there's a couple layers to it. There's the EV battery question. There's also the plug-in hybrid topic. From the EV battery question, people's analogy is whatever they've been driving in in gas cars. That's why they expect a five-minute fill-up. That's why they expect 300 miles of range or more. Although the Chinese focus groups are always interesting because they're used to diesel and they say 600 is their minimum bogey. <laughs> so you know there is that more range at any cost. And if you're not aware of the economics, why wouldn't you want all of the things? So. That's been a push among automakers, and I think especially the premium automakers will continue to go that direction. I still think there's a place while battery costs are dropping and until everyone can have all the things for 20 grand, I think there's still a place for more moderate range vehicles that become cheaper and cheaper and therefore more accessible to regular commuters and sort of the general public, especially in our two plus car household paradigm of the US. So there's a little bit of coming around to if we have more than one car, they don't all have to do all things. And we've seen it in the past where someone gets a leaf but keeps the gas car just in case and and eventually realizes they never really used the gas car. But having that safety net and, and is is good. There's less of that now that moderate range is 200, 225 miles versus, you know, 80 <laughs> where we started. So that helps quite a bit. But those paths will likely converge at some point as battery costs drop. In the meantime, that's part of this overall variety conversation. Price point and range is is are a couple types of that variety that having more options will enable more adoption. But I'm also one of the one of the people in the EV space that is not an absolute purist, and I remain a staunch advocate for really good plug-in hybrids. And the really good part is the key. So 40 miles, I think, is a really decent bogey. there's a bunch of us that have started a little volunteer group in conjunction with actual researchers to define what we're calling strong plug-in hybrids and therefore encourage their inclusion in policy. Mm -hmm. We know the Chevy Volt went away, not because people didn't like it, but because GM didn't get CARB credits for it relative to EVs. Mm -hmm. So the lack of plug-in hybrid choices at the moment is not entirely a market reflection. It's a policy reflection as much as anything else. So from mid-decade onward, we're defining a strong plug-in hybrid, at, for class one, for, for cars at least, it's a different conversation for heavy duty vehicles. 60 miles is a strong plug-in hybrid, and that allows for some you know lower range in the winter, it allows for a little bit long-term degradation, it more than fulfills folks' daily driving, but it still leaves some optionality for longer road trips. And at that range, about 80% of an American's annual miles become electric, And it has a similar greenhouse gas profile to a 300-mile EV while giving people more flexibility. And especially when we start talking about these crossovers and SUVs and the F-150 market, I think some of those folks would resonate far more (laughs) to a 50- or 60-mile plug-in hybrid F-150 that they drive electric but can still tow the boat and work the farm and all the things that they think about than would necessarily adopt a two, three hundred mile electric F-150. So we'll see what Ford chooses to do with some of of those options. But I think we've given up on the category of plug-in hybrids way too soon, especially when we think about rural areas, one car households, those sorts of things. And we've become obsessed with the last 10 or 20 percent rather than focusing on the first 80 percent.
1: Yeah. And I'm really glad you you mentioned that about the plug-in hybrid vehicles because our market research, which is pretty detailed on how far people go per day and how far they think that they need to have with a car, is absolutely ideal for a plug-in hybrid. I don't know how, man, from a manufacturing standpoint, whether that's just a short term, it's an interim um, approach, but given the discomfort that people have with range anxiety, <laughs> and we'll have a whole other podcast about range anxiety – um is, is that yes, um I'm I drive fewer than twenty miles a day or thirty miles a day. Every day, except when I go to grandma's house in Oregon once a year, which they don't really do. So it's it's having that backup and a PHEV fits it perfectly. So, yeah, I love what you're saying about that.
2: Yeah. and I mean, we vastly overestimate our range needs in part because so many people sit in traffic all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm from Los Angeles, so <laughs> we sit there for two hours on a freeway and we think we must have gone 60 miles and we went seven. And it's <laughs> absurd.
1: I'm so sorry. (laughs) Which is why I don't
2: try very much. Um, So, so yes, that's definitely an issue. And unfortunately, most of the plug-in hybrid examples we've had so far have not been that great. And so folks have failed to see the value. And there's been some controversy over, well, primarily one model, but a couple of lower range ones that people just didn't bother to plug in because Mm. the the plug-in hybrid was the way back into the HOV lane or whatever incentive they wanted. And they didn't see enough value for getting nine miles of range to bother plugging it in. So we know that above about 20 miles, people really do plug in. They really do see value from it. It really does do an increasing majority of their daily driving, the, the further you scale up in that range, but also that there's probably a point of diminishing return. You know, there's there's aspirations of, you know, 100 plus mile plug-in hybrids. And I think to Andy Frank's point, we probably will, I mean, he's ironically one of the people that wants that now, but he spent <laughs> most of his career arguing that, you know, above 60, 80 miles, there's a, there's a drop-off and, and there is, and that will vary based on the use case but making sure that what we continue to allow is really robustly electrified and contributing to the solution, not adding to the problem. And yet is for some a bridge and for some it'll be the forever path. You know, my mom got a volt finally five years ago, 90 plus percent of her driving is electric. I do not care so much about her last 10% right now. I got bigger fish to fry with everybody else who hasn't adopted anything with a plug at all. We know that for consumers, the plug is the biggest first step. The data shows that people go increasingly electric, not backwards. So we need to focus more on giving people inviting options to the plug and not so much passing judgment on what that first car is.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting the finding about folks not plugging in their plug-in hybrid. I remember seeing the UC Davis research on that and I couldn't believe it at first, but it does make sense. If it's just this small amount of electric capacity you have, it's like, eh, why yeah. bother?
2: Yeah, and they're part of this plug-in hybrid group. You know, we're, we're pulling on all of the folks with hard data in order to substantiate the case rather than saying, "Yeah, 60 miles sounds good, like a damp finger in the wind.
1: Yeah, and part of it is that 80% of recent sales, like a couple of years where the sales have all been Teslas, and Teslas are... Um, all-electric, and so it takes the conversation away from the potential
0: for PHEVs. Yeah. Thank you both so much for joining us on our first podcast, our first episode of Power Talking for 2021. Really appreciate it. It was a wonderful conversation.
2: Thanks for letting me crash your party.
0: So thank you, Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for getting this together. Thank you, everyone. Be sure to tune in to future episodes to hear about demand response, utility programs, grid optimization. We're also going to be talking about more electric vehicle uh, topics such as consumer charging behavior and knowledge of electric vehicles, electric trucks and other related models, how to grow the consumer markets for uh, electric vehicles, as well as Non EV-related topics such as dynamic pricing, electrification, and how data science can be used for grid optimization. If you'd like to learn more about our electric vehicle research, please visit esource.com/electric-vehicles. You can see all of the enterprise-wide work that we're doing in this area. And be sure to follow and subscribe to hear more exciting topics on Esource Power Talking podcast.